foundries, siblings, and friends. As we continue worshiping together today, I invite you to turn to your Bibles, our Bible apps, to the book of Acts, the 19th chapter, beginning in the first verse. Let us receive together the word of God. When Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the interior regions and came to Ephesus, where he found some disciples. He said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you became believers? They replied, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Then he said, Into what then are you baptized? They answered, Into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. Altogether, there were about 12 of them. Now receive these words from the Gospel according to Mark the first chapter beginning in the ninth verse. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. Receive what the Spirit is saying. Thanks be to God. And today we do start a new sermon series, Tired Feet, Rested Souls. It's inspired by Martin Luther King's letter from the Birmingham City Jail. And over the next six weeks, I'll be bringing themes from the letter into conversation with our scriptural texts. And there is so much for us to explore and to learn together. It does feel like a deep movement of spirit that this series should begin on this Sunday, following the events of this past week. And it is to spirit whom I turn now as we pray. Will you pray with me? Loving spirit, fall afresh on me, your humble servant. Ground me in your way and may my words honor you and speak something of your grace, your mercy, and your call upon us today. I pray this in the power of Jesus' name. Amen. 
In the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice, I've heard so many ministers say, quote, those are social issues which the gospel has nothing to do with. And I've watched so many churches commit themselves to a completely otherworldly religion, which made a strange distinction between bodies and souls, sacred and secular. These words, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., were written in his letter from the Birmingham City Jail an open letter in response to eight white religious leaders who publicly critiqued the peaceful protests against racial segregation that were happening in Birmingham, Alabama in 1963. It's a common thing. I was struck by that quote in the letter it, because it is a common thing in the churches that I have served even in Foundry, believe it or not, to hear people say that they don't want politics in church. Let's not grapple with social issues, which the gospel has nothing to do with. And of course, my question is always, well, what social issue does the gospel have nothing to do with? Uh, it's, it's noted by Dr. King that it's strange for Christians to make a distinction between bodies and souls, sacred and secular. It's strange because the God of the Bible doesn't make these distinctions and most certainly cares about social issues. God cares about politics, that is, about the way we live in community, the way we seek to order our common life and to care for the common good. Moses was political. Esther was political. Isaiah and every prophet was political. Jesus was political. All of these engaged and challenged the rulers and powers of the day for the sake of justice and righteousness and care for the suffering and the oppressed. Ultimately, they did this work for the good of everyone. I've spent significant time in my own life and ministry articulating a biblical, theological, and practical vision for the inherent connection between our Christian faith, our truly Christian faith, and politics or public witness. The book Sacred Resistance is but one evidence of that. Today, I will simply point out that what we have seen on display this past week in our city is not an expression of a healthy tension between different political points of view. It is not an outcry against systemic violence and oppression for the sake of any justice or righteousness defensible in, in holy writ. It is a deep perversion of 
the connection between Christian faith and politics. The insurrection we witnessed was ignited by intentional lies and manipulation, aided and abetted by cynical and self-serving politicians, people from all political parties and none will agree, not all, but many. But the thing that, that particularly pierced my soul, as it always does, is that this horrifying display is fueled by a white Christian nationalism, which has been well-documented and researched, and this white Christian nationalism is not only willing, but happy to have Jesus save signs and crosses paraded proudly alongside the Confederate flag. Before and during the protest, violence was signaled in all the old, familiar, racist ways. And in case anyone missed the more subtle signals, a noose was erected near the Capitol. Religious liberty, another perversion of an otherwise lofty term and ideal, gets used in these contexts to defend selfishness and exclusion and violence and injustice and outright bigotry. As writer and researcher Robert P. Jones wrote, quote, this seditious mob was motivated not just by loyalty to Trump, but by an unholy amalgamation of white supremacy and Christianity that has plagued our nation since its inception and is still with us today. As Jones indicates, this week's events have been centuries in the making. In recent years, however, prominent pastors, white pastors in our country have spoken of our soon to be former president as a savior, an idol in the old Roman imperial mold, now cast in the American imperial mold, a sent from God ruler who would shut down the liberal aggressors who have the audacity to insist that black lives matter and that naming and seeking to eradicate injustice and inequity is not in fact a failure of American patriotism, but it's true call. This new American imperial idol is understood to have been sent by God to get rid of folks like, hmm, I guess me, but more than me, you know who. On this day, when we tell the story of Jesus' baptism, we're reminded that Jesus is the one sent from God. Jesus 
is the one sent from God. Jesus is God's child, the beloved. Jesus models for us how to use our freedom. He clearly had power, charisma, wisdom, every gift, and chose, however, not to throw his weight around, to use those gifts in ways to lord over others, but rather to humble himself, to enter into the same waters of baptism that we share, to face the wilderness and its many temptations, to journey in community and solidarity with all in need, to welcome and to raise to leadership those whom others rejected or ignored, to insist upon both personal spiritual devotion and social justice, to care for both souls and bodies, and to persevere even unto death for the sake of love. Jesus reveals for us the perfected image of God in human form. Because remember, that in the beginning we are told that all humans are created in God's image. All of us, in all our various gender identities, skin colors, nationalities, religions, abilities. Jesus shows us what we are capable of. In our baptism, we are incorporated into God's mighty acts of salvation. We are given freedom and power to resist evil, injustice, and oppression, and called to serve Jesus the Christ in the way of the kingdom, which is love made manifest through justice and equity, and mercy, and compassion, and generosity. One word from our baptismal liturgy that I do not want us to miss today. Power. We are given freedom and power by God. Power to do what? to abuse our privilege, to hoard our resources, to put others at risk for our comfort, to bully and belittle people, to become champions of resentment and cynicism, to be cruel and inhuman, hide behind wealth or whiteness to say, yes, but this doesn't really have anything to do with me. Some people use their freedom and power in that way. I have sometimes used my freedom and power in some of those ways. But God gives us freedom and power 
to follow Jesus. Not the Jesus of our own making, but the Jesus of the Bible, to follow Jesus and to emerge from the waters of God's mercy and love, ready to do what it takes to participate in God's liberating and saving work of kingdom building. Reverend Dr. King wrote, there was a time when the church was very powerful. It was during that period that the early Christians rejoiced when they were deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was the thermostat that transformed the mores of society. The church didn't just reflect the brokenness of the world, but transformed that brokenness. Not just a thermometer, but the thermostat. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote those words as he sat in solitary confinement in the Birmingham jail in Alabama in 1963, a city that he described as being completely engulfed in racial injustice, thoroughly segregated, and widely known for its record of brutality. He'd gone to Birmingham to participate in the campaign to dismantle that city's segregation system by putting pressure on Birmingham's merchants, the business community, during the Easter season, which was the second busiest shopping season of the year. On April the 3rd, 1963, that campaign was launched with mass meetings, lunch counter sit-ins, a march on City Hall, and a boycott of downtown merchants. It expanded in all sorts of ways. On April the 10th, the city government obtained a court injunction against the protests. And two days later, on Good Friday, Reverend Dr. King was arrested for violating the anti-protest injunction and was placed in solitary confinement, where, by the way, he was not allowed to call his wife, who had just had their fourth child, until she intervened with the president. He was in jail for the following week and wrote the letter during that time. He was released on bail on April the 20th. A few days later, on May the 2nd, thousands, uh, oh, more than a thousand African-American students attempted to march into downtown Birmingham, where hundreds were arrested. The following day, Public Safety Commissioner, what a title, Public Safety Commissioner Eugene Bull Connor directed local police and fire departments to use force to halt the demonstrations, the peaceful demonstrations. The next few days images of children being blasted by high pressure fire hoses, clubbed by police officers and attacked by dogs 
appeared on television and in newspapers, sparking international outrage. After mediated negotiation between the business leaders and leaders of the campaign on May the 10th, Reverend King and Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth, the local organizer, announced an agreement with the city of Birmingham to desegregate lunch counters, restrooms, drinking fountains, and department store fitting rooms within 90 days to hire blacks in stores as salesmen and clerks and to release hundreds of jail protesters on bond. Their victory, however, was met by a string of violence culminating four months later on September the 15th when Ku Klux Klan members bombed Birmingham's 16th Street Baptist Church, which had been the staging center for many of the spring demonstrations. Four young black girls, Addie Mae Collins, Cynthia Wesley, Carol Robertson, and Carol Denise McNair were killed. Martin Luther King Jr. delivered the eulogy at their funeral on September the 18th of that year. But even after all of that, Birmingham was considered one of the most successful campaigns of the civil rights era. I tell this story today in some detail, not only because it's the background for the letter, which will guide and inspire us in these coming weeks, but because we need to know this story. We need to hear it again if we've heard it even often. We need to remember that concern for businesses over concern for black lives is not new. We need to see that the issues currently being lifted by our black, indigenous, and siblings of color are the same. The same kinds of attacks that are being waged against them now, all of that was present in 1963 and long before. I tell this story also because it shows a community grounded in their faith and trained in the ways of nonviolent protest and resistance, who does what it takes, willingly going to jail, suffering blows, organizing for power, praying and praying and praying and singing, persevering even in the midst of tragedy after tragedy, doing all of that to make real change. This is a community who uses their God-given freedom and power for the sake of justice and righteousness. They didn't just take the temperature, they changed the thermostat. This is not work that is separate from our lives of faith. It is sacred resistance. It is part of our baptismal call. My beloveds, Foundry, we've, we've taken the temperature, right? We know 
that there are cold hearts that leave others' bodies out in the cold as a result. We know that the heat of rage and resentment and hatred is at a boiling point, doing damage in untold ways. We know things are changing, for better or for worse. We know that we are called to change the world for the better. And as those created in the image of God, given freedom and power through spirit and guided by the love and mercy of Jesus Christ, we are called to not just take the temperature, but to change the thermostat, to turn up the heat where it's needed and to bring coolness where there is none. We are called to do whatever it takes to make real change. I give thanks to God today that we are not just beginning this work. We are not just beginning this journey. We are not just beginning to discern what this might mean or how we might engage. Here are things that you can do. You can continue or to begin doing your own work, your deep work around what it means to follow Jesus in a time such as this. Stay grounded in prayer and in study. Do your own work if you are white. By God's grace, do your own work on your own privilege. Explore the ways that If you're part of Foundry, you are already supporting economic and racial justice through our social justice ministries. Pretty much everything we do is in one way or another engaging and addressing issues of economic and racial injustice for the sake of justice. Maybe some of you uh, out there today can name some of those things and how that shows up. I encourage you to engage with the Journey to Racial Justice initiative at Foundry, which is ongoing. And just yesterday, significant work was done among key leadership to formulate the strategic plan for us to implement real change in our own community and beyond. You can connect with the larger work of anti-racism work and justice work through the Baltimore-Washington Annual Conference, and There We Rise United campaign. First and foremost, you can remember that you are made in the image of God, not the God of our own making, but the God who made you, the God whose image is imprinted upon you. You are a member of family, beloved. And you are given freedom and power. How will you use that freedom and power to change the thermostat, to change the world? Let us pray. God, may you be with us in all of the places we are right now. Guide us and show us what we need to do in our different contexts, 
in our different places and experiences and perspectives to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with you, and to change the world for the better through our lives. Amen. Thank you.